1: Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show. The controversial subject of lung cancer screening. We've discovered with screening
2: for different cancers that they can actually cause harm as well as good.
0: And I speak to David Spiegelhalter about the art of statistics. It is a challenging subject, but it is right in the middle of all this activity of trying to extract the maximum we can from the information we have, but no more.
1: But first... This week, the UK Committee on Climate Change, Britain's independent advisory body, is releasing recommendations on how the UK can cut its carbon emissions. It comes amid protests in London by environmental activists, where more than a thousand people have been arrested. But will this report generate similar passions from the lawmakers? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Katrine Brahek, the environment editor of The Economist. Hello, Katrine. Hello, Ken. The activists of Extinction Rebellion are taken to the barricades, arguing that government should be doing more. What can it do?
3: The main claim of Extinction Rebellion is that the UK cut its emissions to net zero by 2025. What we're expecting this report to announce tomorrow is – a recommendation that the government cut emissions to net zero by 2050. So that's not nearly as soon as the activists are demanding, but at the same time, I think common sense and a lot of science suggests that 2025 is just too soon a target. 2050 is a much more likely target.
1: What is net zero?
3: Right. So net zero is effectively eliminating all of Britain's greenhouse gas emissions. The reason that we call it net zero is because there are ways that you can fudge that slightly. Eliminating all greenhouse gas emissions completely is a huge ask. But there are certain measures that you can use in order to make it a net reduction to zero.
1: And what are some of these things that we can do?
3: One main thing which most of the research suggests we are going to need in order to fight climate change is what's known as negative emissions. These are means of sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere either by, say, planting trees which store it or by literally shoving it underground, for instance, under the North Sea and storing it for hundreds, thousands of years.
1: How do you actually take carbon out of the atmosphere and shove it underground?
3: Right. So that's one of the huge challenges ahead, right? Right. Most of the science suggests that we are going to need some degree of carbon capture and storage. But although the technology is fairly well understood and used on a small scale by fossil fuel companies, what hasn't been done is the trialing and the testing in order to see whether it can be scaled up. That's something that has been sorely lacking in recent years. Most governments have basically shied away from the costs of that.
1: And so if that's the grand challenge... And we can't meet it. It seems like things are a bit of a standstill.
3: I don't think they're at a standstill. So so the the point of the report is to establish a roadmap for how Britain can eliminate its greenhouse gas emissions and how fast it can do that. And we know that there are a lot of things that can be done to to achieve this goal. We know that there's a lot more that can be done than what is currently done. The problem is right now that it's just not being done fast enough. And a lot of that probably relies on government intervention, so government regulations, government sending the right signal to society and businesses saying this is something that matters, this is something that will have to be achieved.
1: If it doesn't appease the activists, what next?
3: I think the activists have played a role. I think the activists are really important in in terms of raising the profile here. But the reality is that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the ground in terms, for instance, of completely decarbonizing the transport system, rolling out 100% electric vehicles on our roads, completely transforming the housing stock so that we're no longer relying on gas boilers, for instance, installing heat pumps across the country, growing a whole load of trees in Scotland, namely reducing our meat consumption. There's a lot that can be done. The problem is you need the drivers. You need the signals in order for it to happen.
1: So the point is that alleviating climate change is soluble. We just might not have the political will for it.
3: Yes. And the big question is going to be whether we can garner that political will.
1: Does it take people getting arrested and teenagers going on strike from school?
3: I do think that people getting arrested and teenagers going on strike from school is a very important part of this. I think that it sends the signal to the government that these are issues that voters care about and importantly the next generation really cares about.
1: And final question for you. What country does it well?
3: Depending on what the target is, Britain could end up having one of the most ambitious goals out there. There are a number of national targets for net zero already, namely Sweden and Norway. In fact, those are projected to come down to net zero before 2050, which is the anticipated date for Britain. But it all depends on how Britain plans on achieving its net zero by 2050. So for instance, the Swedish and the Norwegian targets include international offsets. So they assume that they're going to reduce their emissions down to nearly zero but not quite, and offset the remaining emissions in developing countries primarily through investments, for instance, in green energy technologies in developing countries. If we're going to tackle the global issue here, which is staving off the worst effects of climate change, then we need global solutions and offsets in developing countries just won't get us there.
1: Katrine, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Ken.
1: Next, the controversial topic of screening for lung cancer. It is one of the most deadly cancers because at the moment of diagnosis, most patients have already arrived at stage 4. That means the cancer has spread to other parts of the body, and there is no stage 5. But screening for lung cancer is not as widely done as it is for other cancers. To discuss why this is the case, I'm joined in the studio by Natasha Loder, the Economist healthcare editor. Hello, Natasha. Hi Ken. So, Natasha, why don't we screen for lung cancer more frequently? I
2: think the reason comes down to caution over introducing a new screening test. Because over the years, we've discovered with screening for different cancers that they can actually cause harm as well as good. And I think we've seen that with the prostate cancer screening test, where, you know, you end up having to treat 30 men for prostate cancer just to save one from dying. And so there's a lot of caution about introducing a completely new screening program before we've got the evidence to say that it's
1: actually going to do a good job of helping people. Let's take a step back and look at screening in principle first, because I think a lot of people don't really understand why there's a trade off that's not so obvious with screening.
2: Well no screening test is perfect and so you know you're going to catch cases of cancer that would never have killed you perhaps and that's what they find in some prostate cancers and you get treated for cancer that wouldn't kill you and then also a test may actually say you have a cancer when you don't um, that's called a false positive for example and that's often the case with cancers and we know this actually intuitively with things like skin cancer. We have lots of moles on our body but none of them are cancerous and I think we're understanding that often with breast cancer as well. You'll often find lumps, but they're not cancerous. And that's the same with things like lung cancers and any other cancers. And so if you're doing a CT scan of the lung, you're going to pick up nodules. But the difficulty is saying what these nodules are.
1: So why is it that lung cancer specifically isn't screened?
2: Well... We've had trouble gathering enough evidence to prove the case for lung cancer screening. The first study that was done that started in 2002 was a sort of 10-year study, and it looked at whether x-ray screening once every year for three years versus CT scanning, would save lives. And it did save lives. After 10 years, there was a 20% decline in lung cancer mortality, which is great. The problem was that it was throwing up lots of these false positives. Lots of people were going and having follow-up biopsies. These biopsies were causing harm to them. And overall, it was seen that there was a lot of harm, a lot of anxiety was caused. I think about a third of people were thrown up as false positives in this trial. And so it's taken some time for not only people to sort of adapt that protocol and sort of say, well, actually, maybe there's ways we can do this screening in a way that doesn't throw up so many false positives, but still saves lives, and then produce the evidence to show that that's the case. And that's kind of what's been happening. There are more modern protocols being developed that sort of reduce the number of these false positives and reduce the kind of incidental harms that come about from lung cancer screening. But by and large, I think what people are waiting for are the results of a trial called Nelson, which is just in its sort of closing stages. It's a European trial, and it looks like it's going to show that not only is screening for lung cancer extremely beneficial, that it can greatly reduce the risks. I would add, though, there's an important caveat that we haven't mentioned in terms of screening for lung cancer. All the trials that we're talking about, have focused on heavy smokers, either current or former. It's not thought possible or economic, essentially, to send out a letter to everyone and say, do you want to be screened for lung cancer? It's only really by targeting people who are at high risk of lung cancer, because they're smokers, that you can actually make lung cancer screening sort of work.
1: This sounds a bit problematic, considering that One-fifth of lung cancers are from people who have never touched a cigarette.
2: It's certainly problematic if you are the unfortunate minority of lung cancer sufferers who essentially have gotten lung cancer not through smoking. You're not going to be helped by lung cancer screening at all. That's unfortunate, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and save lives of people who have smoked.
1: And what's the benefit of screening? Why do we want to do that?
2: Well, in theory, all cancers that are caught early are going to be more treatable, whether it's pancreatic, kidney or lung. The difficulty is finding a good test, one that's kind of accurate enough and that can be given to enough people. And so what we should look forward to in the future is perhaps different ways of picking up cancers. Lots of people are working on diagnostics, whether it's looking in the urine or the blood, they call them liquid biopsies, or even in the breath for signs of early lung cancers. So those are the sorts of things that could help us detect lung cancers early. But you do have to essentially, when you use these tests, make sure that they're fairly reliable and they're not throwing up too many false positives or missing cancers.
1: Let me pick up on one element of your answer, the idea of detecting it through the breath. On the program, we've looked at other ways in which we can use scent, for example, to pick up Parkinson's. How would breath work for cancer in this instance?
2: Well, it's a really interesting question. Cancer cells have a different sort of metabolism to regular cells. And they give off volatile organic chemicals that are just slightly different to the sort of regular chemicals that the cells of our bodies give off. And it's funny, actually, because some people have said that their dogs have sniffed out their cancers. And I remember reading a story about the scent maker, Jo Malone, saying that she thought she could smell cancer. And all of these things sound fantastic, except there is this very real, you know, nature of cancer cells is that they do emit these volatile organic chemicals. And so if you have a lung tumour, it's reasonable to wonder whether you could detect it in the breath. And there is a firm in Cambridge actually called Owlstone that's developed a a technology for this, a breathalyser, if you like. And that's currently being tested in trials with the NHS. But again, whether it's a breathalyzer or a blood test, it has to be sufficiently good and sufficiently cheap in order to sort of pick out cancers.
1: Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Finally, the bane of every college student, statistics. Of course, it has played a leading role in our scientific understanding of the world for centuries, and now in business and in society, it is going everywhere. Data science, AI, etc. Yet it's getting a really bad rap, especially in the media. Sensational claim after sensational claim often misuses statistics and data to form an environment of mistrust. One person who is trying to pick through this mess and create solutions is David Spiegelhalter. He's a professor at Cambridge, and he has a new book, The Art of Statistics. He discusses the essential principles we need in order to derive knowledge from data. And he's come into the studio to discuss just how to do that. So tell me about the problem that you see in the world and how you'd fix it.
0: Well, okay, two things. The first thing is about the teaching of statistics and how it's portrayed, which frankly, I think, is pretty dire and What I take in this book is actually to exemplify what's considered a modern way to approach statistics. The traditional statistics course, which I – if you might have done and many listeners will have done and probably hated – you know, you start off with some simple stuff, mean, median, mode, and that kind of things, and that's a bit boring, and then you go into probability theory, and then the next thing, you're looking at probability distributions for test statistics, and uh, you're looking at the distribution of the sample mean and the central limit theorem, and then you get on to, of course, p-values and significance tests, and, and type 1 and type 2 errors, and confidence intervals, and then you've got all these formally t-tests, chi-squares, regressions, and it's just like a bag of tools that you might apply to a set of data.
1: I'm nauseous with flashbacks from my undergraduate exactly. days.
0: Exactly. Which tests do I do to this data and this sort of stuff? This is dire. It really is. It puts people off and it's not what statistics is. So the modern way of teaching statistics, which has been developed largely in New Zealand, in fact, but it has been taken off from the States and other places, is to start with problems, to see statistics as problem solving. So you start off, what is the problem? That data might be able to help me answer. And it could be a technological problem to do with building a recommendation system or making a prediction or something like that. Or it could be a scientific problem about evaluating a new drug or whatever. And then you think, what data do I need? And sometimes you might be able to run an experiment, a randomised trial, but very often you have to make do with the data that you might have. And then you realise the data isn't actually going to be good enough to properly answer my problem. Always the case. Always the case. It's always an inadequacy to in the data, both because you can't measure the right things or it's missing or it's poorly recorded or whatever. And that is actually the main bit of statistics, is trying to match the data with a problem you've got and then drawing the correct answer. The actual doing the technical stuff and running the software and choosing which test is so minimal compared with all that work on trying to solve problems. Now, there's another problem. It's not talked about
1: enough, but it's there, lingering. It's a little bit like the problem, quote-unquote, of literacy in the printing press. It all worked really well when a handful of people were literate. They could read. Ideas would pass among people in a very coordinated and, and elevated way. And once you gave the hoi polloi the ability not just to read but to write, anything goes. We're having the same issue now with data everywhere we look in society because of Microsoft Excel and Tableau software and everywhere wants to be a data-driven organization and they might not have the competence to use it wisely.
0: Exactly. And it's not just a matter of competence, it's a matter of realization of what you can learn from data. And that's why the subtitle of the book is Learning from Data. The point is that, as I say right at the beginning, quoting Nate Silver... You know, 538. Data does not speak for itself. We imbue it with meaning data will, you can't, it's not just an automatic process that I think, I'm, I'm afraid some firms might think, no, oh, we, we got some data, we'll apply this AI stuff or this machine learning and it'll give us the answer. Like, you know, just trundles through this algorithm and out comes an answer. That is completely disastrous and many in the AI data analytics world, of course, are realizing it now because of the questions about the fairness, the transparency, particularly the robustness of algorithms to changing to new environments and actually being, you know, probably Acknowledge that in order to build robust algorithms that will work in practice, we need to know about the quality of the data. We need to understand its, its limitations and we need to be cautious about the claims we can make on the basis of, of, of that data.
1: You know, it seems like we're in the midst of a, an incredible renaissance in the use of statistics in society, in part because of AI and machine learning. Mm-hmm. What do you expect for the future of this very arcane Discipline that's quasi-mathematical and
0: quasi-philosophical. Oh, I, it's great. Oh, well, first thing, of course, I think it's a golden age for this discipline. And I think I'd recommend anyone to get into it because you're absolutely – it's right in the middle of stuff. It's not part of maths. It's not – it's only – it's a part of data science but not all of it. And it is quite philosophical. It's – I have to admit it and I admit it in the book. It's quite difficult. Many issues are difficult. I've got a whole chapter on Bayesian reasoning and things like that and a whole chunk on the philosophy of probability. You know, what does probability even mean? So, you know, and I could go on for hours about that one. But um, it, it is a challenging subject. But it is right in the middle of all this activity of trying to extract the maximum we can from the information we have but no more. In other words, to really work out what can we learn from this data? How can we interpret it? What can we take away from it? And what can't we take away from it? This is a challenging subject that is not just a technical issue. It's not a mathematical issue. It involves judgment and knowledge and context and background and a bit of philosophy.
1: And wisdom. That's right.
0: Well, I don't think a word appears in the book. But I would love to think that there is an element of wisdom there as well.
1: David, thank you so much. Thank you. Regular Babbage listeners know that occasionally on the show we give away a book, and this week David has very kindly signed us a copy to send to one lucky listener who answers a question with suitable pith. In order to win a copy of The Art of Statistics, Learning from Data, please email your answer to the following question. Everyone knows the famous saying that there are three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. But we want listeners to flip that around and suggest a new phrase, starting with, there are three types of truths, dot, dot, dot. So please finish that sentence and email your answers to radio at economist.com. The team here will look at it, and with our complete subjectivity and arbitrariness and capriciousness, we will choose one lucky listener. We will send them a book, and we will read out the phrase on air in another program. And that's all for this week's edition of Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, because it does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.